Live from the Talking Joe Studios. It's Talking Joe. Talking Joe is on the air. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, Mama. I know I act the fool, but I promise I'm going back to school. It's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe, the best and longest running dedicated G.I. Joe Comics podcast. If you're new to the show, you can find out all of the details over at the website, talkingjoe.co.uk. And of course, if you know about us already, like and subscribe, uh, say good things about us, help those algorithms. We have concluded our uh, look at the Frontline series. So we are back looking at the main Devil's Due series, which picks up with G.I. Joe issue 26. Scott Sturgis is a reasonable man from Devil's Due in 2004. Uh, This issue marks the beginning of what I would call the Brandon Jerwa era of G.I. Joe as he takes the reins as the solo writer on the main book. But I will not be talking about this alone. So let me introduce my co-hosts and switching the order for comic effect. First up is a reasonable man. It's G.I.J. Jay Cordray. Howdy, Joe fans. I don't know about that reasonable Joe or that uh, reasonable man part, but we'll go with it. Hope everybody's ready to, to, to talk comics. And uh, also joining us is an unreasonable man. It's Tim Finn. He's not really. I hello every hello listeners and hello Mark and hello Jay. I I'm stumbling because I want to say something hilarious about reasonable and unreasonable, but I got nothing. <laughs> it's tough. We don't have it's a lot of prep tough. time. It's a reasonable reaction, um, ironically. Um, so so we are sneaking behind the curtain. We're recording not too far after New Year's. We've had a little break for christmas uh so so it's been a couple of weeks since we last talked so uh good to be back on the line with uh with you guys uh again i hope hope you had uh a pleasant and peaceful and or exciting uh christmas period whichever is uh preferable for you yes (laughs) peaceful uh peaceful and exciting both uh were good and preferable (laughs) Did you get G.I. Joe-related things underneath the Christmas tree? Uh, not exactly. I did get Sergeant Slaughter action figure the day before Christmas in the mail um, that I mm-hmm. ordered like six months ago. So that was kind of cool. That, that's, that's good as. Two days after Christmas, a customer came into my store and bought G.I. Joe, the complete collection hardcovers, one, two, three, four, five. Wow. I and, bet they were steel as well at cover price. And uh, that that doesn't ever happen. No, no one really ever comes in and buys five hardcovers in a row all at once. And it certainly isn't something like G.I. Joe. What's what was that collection, <laughs> Tim? These are the IDW. They're forty nine ninety nine or forty nine ninety five. They're IDW. Each hardcover is the cover is a single color. Volume one was green. It just has the logo and it. Uh, reprints the Marvel run in chronological order. So after issue 50, it starts mixing in special missions, but it also includes the pack-in comics that were in between issues, like 34 and a half and wow. 20, 21 and a half. Uh, and uh, Mark Belomo put these together for IDW. So he has an introduction and notes in each issue. And there are some 
quote, hmm. bonus features like scans of the um, toy vehicle blueprints. Oh, wow. I think I think mixing in special missions chronologically is great. I think mixing in the like 2008 or 2013, like the new toy pack in comics that Larry Hama wrote. Right. Um, I think that's a nice idea, but I think those are so different that those actually really just want to be on their mm-hmm. own in their own collection. Yeah. Soft cover or hardcover. And yeah, I wouldn't want the 21B in there with the. Yeah. Also, with 21. Um, I don't think IDW had the original files for all these comics. So some of them are scanned from comics. So the reproduction's oh. a little contrasty. And you. Um, but. Uh, also, and this this is a topic for another day, but I don't I don't love IDW's reproduction of Real American Hero from issue fifty one and up, because um, they looks like they scanned the original comics, stripped the color, and then redid the coloring. Whereas when uh-huh. Digital Chameleon did new separations to like redo the old coloring for like modern printing, but in the style of the original coloring for the first fifty issues for those five paperback that marvel did around 2001 digital chameleon had access to the original negatives or files of the art and so idw is if you're thinking of classic gi joe soft covers uh one through five to me look great and six and up don't look as good if you look at the lettering sometimes it's kind of crunchy anyway uh merry christmas (laughs) and happy new year let's talk about devil's due 26 we're gonna talk about coming from devil's due it's something you wanted if Talking Joe would ever do. I guess we'll explain it all to you. Gonna take some time to read the books we've never read. Oh. So this is, yeah, issue 26. January 2004 is the cover date. It is called Scott Sturges is a Reasonable Man. The uh, creative team are Story, Brandon Jawa, Brandon, Brandon Jawa. Uh, pencils, Tim Seeley. Inks, Corey Hampshire. Colours, Brett R. Smith. Letters, Dreamer Designs. Graphic design is Mike Norton. And military consultation is Andrew Swenson and Tillman Goines. Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. Tim Seeley, Andrew Pepoy, and Val Staples. So I, I'm really torn on this cover because um, at first glance, it's striking. You know, it's a cool draw you know some badass joes just you know standing there looking at you and some have weapons and they're all determined and there's no background but that's okay because there's a you know interesting color behind them that's a little unusual for gi joe covers or doesn't look like the last issue or two that preceded this and there's there's a dramatic red underlight uh on all the joes uh which is uh which is pretty well done but Tim Seeley's drawing, this this doesn't look like a bunch of different characters cut out and pasted together. That's that's not that's not really what I want to say. But there is a straight up and down quality to almost everyone on this cover. And 
by the time you look at Flint and Spirit all the way on the right, it feels like Seeley has just run out of ideas on how to give them anything interesting to do. And I don't mean like hold up a weapon or like hold up a fist. What I really mean is like do anything with their spine, with their rib cage, with their pose. And mm-hmm. this is something that I see in Tim Seeley's art, in issues we've talked about before and in this very issue. And so I don't want to I, I don't want to just say like it's too stiff because that's not quite what I mean, because there is some animation and movement in Tim Seeley's art. Right. He's not an artist who like a, a complaint that that I've I've had with other artists nowadays are like tracing 3D models of characters like in a in a program like Google Google SketchUp or Poser. Right. Like this isn't that kind of stiff. Uh, there's no rhythm. There's no rhythm in this cover. Like the, if you, the, if you, you might, if you, you might sense a slight more element of rhythm to the cover if you were to take the back cover and fold it such that you could see the front and back together at the same time, Tim. Um. Uh, okay. So, back cover and front cover side by side. Because the back cover is better, it diminishes what doesn't work about the front cover. But if I pick this up at a store when it comes out, they're not like folding the comic open. So it is the front cover that has to sell it. So I think of it this way. If this cover does not really pass the silhouette test, if you black in all the Joes, you just have black where they are and white where the uh, negative space is, um, it's, it's not a pleasing repetition of shapes. So there's a there's a subtle lack of rhythm to these poses. So good cover, not a great cover. <laughs> what, what I was pointing was to, I guess, is was the was the mirroring on the back cover uh, of the Cobra characters uh, against the the GI Joe characters on the on the front cover. So you have you know Storm Shadow being reverse of Snake Eyes, Cobra Commander being reverse of Duke, Baroness being the reverse of Scarlet, and and so on. Which uh, yeah, it makes makes it for slightly uh, more more interesting composition than perhaps just the two images taken in in isolation. Um, the the other thing I wanted to call out about um, the the sort of the look of the, this this cover and the way it was drawn is that if you flip to the the inside front cover the, on the credit page, it has just the the black and white lines essentially of the cover without the the coloring, and and it's sort of looking at that image, it's quite striking how open tim seeley's style is how sort of quite clean crisp um uh without too many spotted blacks or or sort of you know you know unnecessary cross hatching um or noodling there there is is there that and um the extent that he's he's then left it open for for the colorist to i guess do more without making it uh too too crowded i have long liked val staples's color work Val Staples colored some of, um, did he color some of Criminal? Uh, was Yeah, Val Staples was the original color artist on Brubaker and Phillips's Criminal. Ah, okay. And Val Staples colored, I think he colored some of the He-Man comics that he published. I'm blanking on the name of the company. But uh, uh, I, I do like the colors on this cover. And, and, then, and I would love it if Val Staples had colored this issue. <laughs> yeah we do have a credited colorist uh in this issue brett r 
Smith, which uh, I guess does make a, a change for the for the regular issue. Uh, something else to to note, I guess, uh, that's striking and different uh, about the uh, the front cover for this particular issue is the logo. It is the first issue with uh, featuring the Devil's Due Production DDP logo as opposed to the image logo. So this is post DDP setting themselves up as a as a publisher in their own right. And uh, and and that the somewhat acrimonious split from Image and and put, you know putting out uh, the book themselves under their their own logo. Yeah, we can add a little bit more context here. Dreamwave had am I remembering this correctly? Dreamwave had started uh, publishing Transformers comics with Image and then left, and then Devils do. Am I remembering this correctly? That sounds right. Yeah, and so Image sort of had this one-two punch of of a studio or production house setting up with and through image and image would do the work and, Mm -hmm. uh, and then doesn't get any of the sort of market share. If that, if, you know, Dreamwave or then devils do leaves and image is not about making money for what's called image central, the, like the office in California where like a handful of people, you know, like do sales and advertising and like do the catalogs and do the website, right? Like, if you're Josh Blaylock and you make money off of your G.I. Joe comic for two years selling it through Image, like Eric Larson and Todd McFarlane and Jim Valentino don't take a cut of that. And there are no shareholders who take a cut of that. You know, like your book makes you money at Image and you pay a small flat fee to what's called Image Central so that it can keep chugging along and actually produce your book, like actually print it. But there's still... You know, you put a lot of effort if you're an image comics into welcoming some independent creators to publish through you. And if after two years they leave with some high selling books, that's a uh, that's a that's a disappointment. I was just I was just fact checking that in the background there. So Pat Lee founded uh, Pat and his brother Roger Lee founded Dreamwave Productions in 1996 as an imprint under Image Comics and Dreamwave split off from Image Comics in April 2002. So sometime before Devil's Due did the same. But yeah, post post Dreamwave uh, acquiring the Transformers uh, license, which they did in December 20, 2001. So in some ways, it's a, it's a, a sort of a launch issue, both in terms of, you know, uh, having a new writer, but also... Uh, while retaining the the numbering, it, it is the first issue of the Devil's Due publishing uh, logo view of the world. So they, you know, want to make it make it accessible for for new readers for that purpose, if if nothing else. Okay, so um, we've looked at the front of the cover and who's doing it, uh, but what happens on the insides? Hopefully, Jay will be able to tell us with a plot breakdown. I'll do my best. As the Joes mourn their dead from the recent battle on Cobra Island, a new player enters the game, journalist Scott Sturgis, who is trying to get to the truth of the return of the Joes and of their eternal adversaries, Cobra. One day, Sturgis is spotted spying on a group of Joes playing baseball in the desert, and a plan is put in motion by the Joes team's first sergeant, Duke. The next evening, after Sturgis has gone to bed, two men in Cobra Viper uniforms break into his house and inject him with a deadly contagion. The Cobras tell Sturgeon if he reveals the location of the Joe HQ, they'll give him the antidote. 
Suddenly, a group of Joes show up to rescue Sturgis and send the Cobras packing. The Joes take Sturgis to Duke, who tells him he will give him the antidote he needs in exchange for his cooperation. Sturgis asks, what do I need to do? Duke says, just listen, and proceeds to give Sturgis the Reader's Digest version of the Joes' conflict with Cobra, needlessly spotlighting a number of key Joes and their personal backstories. Afterward, Duke and Sturgis fly to Reykjavik, Iceland, where Duke sets Sturgis up in the Joes' Icelandic Bureau as... something with the new codename Scanner. Meanwhile, back in Washington, D.C., the Crimson Twins, Tomax and Zaymot, have just made a deal with the U.S. military to retake control of Cobra Island. Uh, okay, thank you, Jay, for the plot breakdown. So, talking points for me, uh, I think what I noticed was just there's it, it's one issue. It's, you know, the, the, the regular number of pages, I think. But there just seemed to be a lot being uh, fit into to, to the issue. Um, we had the kind of the wrap up um, slash continuation of the previous arc, and it um, we had it kind of acting as a jumping on point for for new uh, readers. We we had this memorial at Arlington National Cemetery. We had a little game of softball. There was this Scott Sturges investigation. Little uh, cutaway to a coil conflict in Badis. Bad Hikistan and control of nuclear codes. Uh, we had the, the, that capture of Sturges. We had the plotted summary of GI Joe and Cobra events and the cast. Uh, we had then this, you know, this establishing Sturges in the Iceland base, and uh, then a final wrap up as well with Tomax and Zaymot with shenanigans with corrupt generals and manipulation of paperwork to gain control of uh, Cobra Island. So quite. A lot of things going on, a lot of characters, a lot of scenes uh, in a fairly short amount of time, but it felt very peppy. It moved along at pace, but despite all of that that stuff happening, didn't come across as being too crowded, which has tended to be the case when, when this has been attempted so far in the issues that we've been covering from, from Devil's Jew. Did, did you guys kind of get that same impression? I would agree that there is a lot but not too much and not at the expense of drama or action or, uh, you know, setting up for whatever uh, the next issue is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my, the, the things, the things that I take issue with are, will sound familiar. It's like art or color, <laughs> art or color or storytelling. It's not actual writing. Yeah. Jay. I don't know. I'm not a big fan of this issue. I mean, I was kind of excited going into it, being as I liked uh, Branninger was frontline arc really well. I mean, this issue wasn't bad. It's you know kind of like you guys said, there's a lot there, but it's not like super packed. But I just don't know if I love the idea of the story. You know, uh, the Joe's catching a, a journalist, and basically Duke tells him all kinds of stuff. And like I said in the in the plot breakdown, needlessly summarized various characters stories like he doesn't need to know anything about the ninjas and, and stuff it, I, I understand that it's catching the readers up but just internally I, I feel like that wouldn't have happened uh jay, jay might be uh pulling me to his side <laughs> uh, maybe maybe i'm so anxious to talk about art and color and storytelling that i forgot that i did find that two-page spread of exposition uneven where Duke's telling the journalist. So catching up the reader, lots of fun. Would this actually play out this way in the scene? Yeah, I, I, I do agree with Jay. So before I say like firmly, like, 
the writing is terrible in this issue because of that scene. Um, that's a joke. I wouldn't phrase it that way. Can you guys remind me how much in the Devil's Due version of G.I. Joe is G.I. Joe known and public? It seems to be f- pretty public. I mean, we had Flint mm. writing a book in right one of the issues. Um, yeah, it's slightly inconsistent, I think. Ray but, Block is a celebrity yeah. chef, so I mean, they're they're pretty. But I mean, is do we get any sense from, for example, Roadblock being a celebrity chef? It's not like he's talking about being a Joe. He's just like ex-military. You know, it's like when I read comic books Maybe. published by DC, written by Tom King, right? Like Batman or Strange Adventures or Sheriff of Babylon. I know he was in the CIA in the real world. I don't mean in the story, but he's not like talking about what specifically he did in the CIA. So um, my sense uh, with, I think, Mark's answer that it's inconsistent is that because this comic is half the continuity of the TV show mixed in with the Marvel continuity and in the animation in the 80s, people sort of knew who G.I. Joe was, right? And like, and, he, and that was consistent because in, um, in the second miniseries in 1984 with the Weather Dominator, uh, when Roadblock meets, uh, I forget her name, but she's blonde and she has a cowboy hat. Honda Lou. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Honda Lou. Um, and they're in, the, they're in the back of a truck together and he, doesn't he toss her an apple? And doesn't she say, he's like, he's like, my name's Roblox. I'm with G.I. Joe, and I'm here to stop Cobra. And she's like, a real G.I. Joe? It's like, no, I don't think you'd know what that is. Oh, yeah. um, the Joes are definitely public in the cartoon, because how many episodes did we see Cobra Commander would probably be like, ah, oh, surrender Joes, you know, on national TV or something. That's true. That's true. I mean, it was um, always kind of a... So, you know, it's like, like you, we, the three of us know about the Green Berets and Delta Force and the Navy SEALs, but we don't know any of their names. We right. don't know where they go until missions are declassified. So um, I think, I think, a, I think a, a rewrite of this scene, this two page spread where Duke is, is giving all this exposition to the journalist is what's called for. I, I don't love the idea of him just saying, I'll tell you everything. Yeah. But Jirwa could win me over if he played it a certain way. Uh, and I don't think he quite played it that way. But um, because, you know, like Flint wrote a book, I, I just sort of went with it. Yeah. Yeah. If if he would have just stuck to like more operational procedures, this is how we operate. This is what we do rather than. Snake Eyes is a ninja and he's part of this clan and uh, he left Scarlet at the altar. I couldn't believe he said that. That was the line that made me my my mouth hit the yeah. floor. I was like, what? Duke just told this guy that Snake Eyes left his girlfriend at the altar, but he can't talk. And I'm like, shut up, Duke. Uh, <laughs> yes, that that gets a that gets a that line gets a big frown. From yeah. Me. Maybe Duke's just a bit sore about it. Least fa- um, because <laughs> because it's half the animation <laughs> continuity and some version yeah. of this Duke. Um, that scene, them them bringing this journalist in and giving him and the reader the lay of the land, recalls a different GI Joe comic book from 2015. Uh, it's the issue of GI Joe, published by IDW in the ongoing Real American Hero series. 
It's the it's the regular monthly issue that did not have an issue number, and it was published between uh-huh. two, 219 mm-hmm. and 220, and it was not it was not double shipped. It was just like one month there was 219, the next month there was GI Joe Cobra World Order Prelude, and then the next month there was 220. And in that issue, uh, I think it's Duke, not Hawk, but I could be wrong. Gives uh, is it Senator Senator Wendy, Wendy Lynn Torres? Lynn. Yeah, mm-hmm. thank you, Wendy Lynn Torres gives her a tour of the pit and it and lays out the whole conflict. And the reason why that works is because, uh, A, as with this issue kicking off Jerwa's run, it's the prelude to a big story. But B, more importantly, she's a senator and she's allowed classified or top secret information. And so Jerwa is, is really leaning on the reader's acceptance and faith here of sort of the rules of this this universe where like what i did think was about to happen was that they were going to somehow make this guy work for them or be a joe or do some intel for them so to to that ex, to that extent i like how they bring him in and specifically with the two vipers i think that was clever and fun and and well set up and well followed through um and then like iceland like that's that's funny uh the actual two page spread uh. Yeah, I think it. I think as as you've both said, it's the it's the kind of talking about the Scarlet and Snake Eyes relationship is probably just slightly uh, uh takes you out takes you out of it. It's just one thing thing too too far uh in in terms of the context of the scene and him him briefing this this guy about the GI Joe and Cobra conflict as a as a like as a kind of as a reader having that you know as a sort of being aware of that kind of interplay might be useful but um specifically for for the breakdown of the gi joe cobra conflict for uh yeah a, a journalist <laughs> snooping perhaps not i'm still waiting for devil's due to give me a good scarlet scene mm. uh, we've had how many you know how many issues have we read and just the scarlet's consistently and i know she wasn't in that issue but just having uh but she is know, on the cover whole, that whole uh, oh snake eyes left her at the altar it's like yeah you had to bring that back you had to, you had to you <laughs> your had to favorite just bit just rub that, <laughs> lot, that you know rub that salt in that wound that everybody doesn't like just Jerwa's structure for this issue struck me as optimistic that as a publishing initiative or as a writer decision uh issue 26 was maybe this is this is conjecture was maybe a chance to get readers back who had fallen off during the previous two years. And I don't think in sort of the realities of like comic book sales, that's likely to happen with um, a different writer who's um, mostly unknown and a different artist who's mostly unknown. You know, like if they'd gotten um, a very exciting, famous artist to start doing covers for issue 26 or, you know, like a better known artist to do 26 or, or writer. And I'm not saying they should have. What I'm saying is this is this is written as a jumping on point. This isn't just, as, as Jay was saying, or I was saying sort of nebulously to remind readers what's going on. This is to show new readers what the status quo is, because Jirwa, Jirwa is going to take this in a different direction. Like some of the things that have happened, like Jirwa is going to do his own thing. And so... Uh, and part of why I mentioned this is that 
I don't remember having this specific thought at the time, but looking back, I can imagine I did. Like, oh, there's a new writer showing up. I bailed on this comic in the intervening two years. Um, maybe I should come back and give it another try. And uh, this is where I feel like if we if we had like a fourth um, host of the show, that might be the person like statistically, you know, it's like Jay, Jay's, Jay's reading these for the first time. Uh, I read some of them for the first time, but didn't continue. Mark read them, but doesn't remember them. So was rereading them. I feel like if we had a fourth <laughs> regular cast member, statistically, that would be the share of the audience who would say, you know, I wasn't into the end of the Blaylock run, but I did come back from 26 and this is what I think of it. I don't know. I don't know if it's a great jumping on point. Yeah, as a, as a jumping on point, I think what it's probably missing is just that extra bit of excitement. I, there's, It feels like a sort of easing you in rather than a possibly how Hammer might, you know, come at it, which is a kind of opening, you know, page, bang, we're in the middle of a yeah. new story. That's the thing. And there is, a, you know, there is a bit action. of that with the, with the coil, but um, it is... You know, it it, it it sort of it's a more gradual trans transition rather than a kind of an explosive uh, start. Bang! You're in the middle of a, a new adventure. You know what really works against it? Uh, we were saying, you know, what it lacks is well, it, it lacks action. And I thought, well, there is this scene in the middle of the book in uh, Badikistan, I guess it is. Um, you know, where you have Claymore and and uh, Stalker. But this whole, for me, this sequence here is, it's just really ugly. I mean, the colors and the art are, are just horrendous. And starting with, I guess it'd be page nine. Um, and the whole, this whole sequence over overseas, you know, it's, it's raining, which, you know, whatever. But the skies are just really dark. It just, you know, even, even when they get inside, it doesn't look good. It's, yeah. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, 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 um, we, there are two threads that I want to follow from what we've just, um, uh, let me, let me come back in a moment to Jay's comment about, um, art and color and, and, and hover on, on story for a minute. The, the baseball scene immediately put me in mind of this wonderful convention that X-Men readers mm-hmm. will recognize, mm-hmm. yep. which is that, um, every couple of years and it's happened five or six times in um, X-Men or Uncanny X-Men, the X-Men will play a baseball game after they've had some uh, like big deal mission or story. Um, It happened in uh, Uncanny 110. It happened in Annual 7, which was drawn by Michael Golden. It happened in 201. Um, It happened in, I think, 325, which was not a Claremont story. Uh, Matarera drew it. Uh, so I think it was Scott Lobdell. And it happened when Claremont came back later in Uncanny 444. And th- those scenes may be shorter than I remember, but I feel like they're always like half the issue. And the the G.I. Joe baseball game here, what it does is it, as a story device, it gives uh, Scott Scott Sturgis a reason to see the Joes outside when sort of Mm -hmm. he wouldn't likely see them outside or they wouldn't be outside because their base is underground. So as a device that works Um, in terms of what it does for the Joes, it doesn't really do anything. There's, there's like two little jokes about, you know, someone's good at baseball or someone's bad at baseball, but 
they're not talking about how this is a change of pace from this traumatic, exciting battle they just had. They're just sort of like doing exposition, like physical exposition for this reporter to see them. And so, A, comparing this to these five or so X-Men examples of baseball games, um, it doesn't compare favorably. And B, as a narrative device, it doesn't add much to the scene for the Joe's sake. To Jay's point about art and color, does point out one thing about the color and one thing about the art. We see devil's stew colors distracting you. I see devil's stew colors. Light sources don't seem true. So Tim's not afraid to let them know devil's stew colors. Dew colors are awful. So uh, on page one, on page one, panel one, right? You don't even, you don't even have to count. I don't think colorist Brett R. Smith has a good handle on how light behaves. I think Brett R. Smith knows how to push things around in Photoshop because there are gradients and there are highlights and there are shadows and there are some effects, you know, like the white lines of the raindrops hitting or the white, the black lines of the ink become white lines as well. Okay. In page one, panel one, look at the highlights on the backs of these soldiers' um, hats and shoulders. The highlights are pure white. What is happening on an overcast day when it's raining to create such a highlight? Like, generally, when it's... I'm looking out the window right now of as, as I sit here <laughs> saying these words, and the sky is like whitish light gray, and it's just overcast. And, uh, like, you know, things have cast shadows, but they're all diffuse. And, like, nothing, nothing has an extreme highlight. And if you need a G.I. Joe example, look at the look at the funeral scene with Channing Tatum in G.I. Joe Rise of Cobra. Right. So like so this panel, this whole scene, most scenes in this comic are colored as if and I've said this before, there's some invisible like light bulb, like hanging five feet higher than everyone else in in the scene, like just out of view for the reader outside the panel. It's like, no, 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 no. There would not be these extreme uh, gradients, these big changes from light to dark. In terms of um, of art, uh, this is a similar comment I made about the cover, but on page five, the first panel, where we see Scott Sturgis, uh, and he's got his glasses, and he's looking left, and he says, quit, t- quit talking to yourself and go get the disc, Scott. It's not like they're just going to disappear. <sighs> on its surface, this is a well-drawn panel, right? It's proportions, and it's hand, and there's background, there's foreground, there's background. But in terms of acting, I don't know what this expression, what this face, what this body language, what that hand says at all. Like, if you were to delete the word balloon here, nothing about this panel says to me, intrepid reporter talking to himself, or intrepid reporter stunned at his own good luck and journalistic expertise. Right. It, it isn't even the like smirk on his face, although I don't quite understand the smirk. But like 
Tim Seeley's body language is often, it's like obvious. It's like someone is either doing something in action, they're running, they're shooting, they're punching, they're standing, like a cool Batman, Superman, superhero standing pose, like the cover, or they're sort of not doing anything. They're like kind of stiff, kind of straight. And and I see that a lot. And some of this, I think, is this criticism I've levied before on Seeley that I think he learned to draw a lot from looking at comics and less to draw, less from looking at real things like drawing people and trees and cars. And then some of it is also, you just, you know, practice. It's like you draw more comics, you tend to get better. Uh-huh. I mean, my comment on the on the art would be, um, I think that that generally, um, I yeah, I could you know, I I could I can see all the points you're you're making, and and he's still relatively new in his career, but um, it's my takeaway would from the art would be that yeah, it's not not especially flashy. You wouldn't necessarily buy the book just on on the, you know for the art on its on its own if you take out the ingredients of GI Joe and and the writing, but um, it you know there's there's a lot going on. GI Joe is a bit difficult book to to draw as we've you know established multiple times already, and I think he's sort of quietly and simply doing the the job, and and hopefully as we progress over these issues, um, getting better at, at, at as he goes, and and this you know this arc that that we're you know the long arc that we're we're on the the era i guess you'd call it of uh issue 26 through to 43 is very much brandon jerwa and tim seeley doing the bulk of the art on those those issues so so you know it is kind of hand in hand uh jerwa and and seeley era and um i think in in terms of comics uh there's it's sort of maybe not celebrated as much as it as it could be but i think consistency of an artist does bring an awful lot to a book and it's difficult to necessarily put a tangible kind of thing behind that but but in terms of just creating that body of work of of the same creative team and and then sort of having an era of a book rather than just a couple of issues here a couple of issues there it, it does give a a certain something like you know the wig and that's no, all like Let's say the the Trimpy era, the the Vosberg era, the um, uh, Wiggum era, the, the Wagner era, etc. I think just having those those uh, long runs really does bring bring something to to the to the book. Yeah, Seely isn't bad. I mean, if you look at that first page, uh, like Tim was talking about, just imagine that without any of the color. It's like you pointed out with the the inside front cover, how how sparse Seely's uh, artwork really is. Now think about the uh, the funeral for uh, General Flag back in the original run. That was all just flat colors. Uh, everything was open. Yeah, this one's it, it, you know in the rain. It's kind of a, a, a rainy day. But even with if they had just stuck with more flat colors and, and and not gone so dark on everything, it would have been way better to look at. I mean, this is just it's like I said. It starts with this first page and and, and it goes throughout the the art is just really, really hampered by this overcoloring. I had a, I had two storytelling uh, uh, bump, bumps uh, that I, I wanted to point out um, at, at the end of page eight. So uh, Scott Sturgis, uh, there's a, a six panel page with almost no dialogue. He's driving, he's got his binoculars. Uh, we see the Joe Pitt entrance open 
close up on his binoculars. And then there's a, a POV shot or in film, what's called a matte shot, M-A-T-T-E, where like you're seeing the like outline of binoculars or a telescope. So someone is looking at Scott Sturgis, right? Uh, and he says, you want to, pre-, saying to himself, you want to prove Scott? And then uh, like over a radio, someone says, so now what? And then in the final panel of the page, it continues. Is that him? We've never actually been introduced. And there's some uh, mystery person who looks like a bad guy because they've got like super high-tech gear and we can't see any skin and the, the lights are red. So it, it doesn't look like a battle android trooper, but whoever this is, like, you know, sort of the rule for the Joes is that you can see who they are and sort of the rule for the Cobras is mm-hmm. that they have masks. So I don't know who this is. And I sort of lost the thread that they are the one looking at Scott Sturgis because it sort of looks like in this panel, they're looking down, like they're higher up. But in the previous panel, when we actually see what they see, they're looking straight on at Scott Sturgis. And then um, Jurwa is doing like uh, a J cut, or maybe it's an L cut, uh, where you, it's a film term where you hear the sound of the next scene while you're still seeing the like final moments of the current shot. That's what I was um, going to ask you. So like, is that him? We've never actually been introduced. So I sort of thought that the like, now what is like this guy with the baseball cap and the red night vision? Yeah. Who's look, it's like someone's talking to him over his radio and he's looking at Scott Sturgis. But I think actually Jerwa has started the quote audio of the next scene so early it's these Joes driving on this uh, vehicle, Big Ben and um, and Dodger uh, in Badhikistan. Badhikistan. Um, I actually find both this scene transition very confusing because I was like, wait, who's talking? Where are we? And then the color, the actual palette, like the reds and blues that are chosen for both the Scott Sturgis scene and also the Badhikistan scene are pretty similar. So I sort of thought that the scene ended with this final panel of Scott Sturgis in the scope. And then on the sixth panel of that left page, we are now cutting to this new location. And this guy with the baseball cap and the night vision goggles is looking at the Joes in the vehicle, or maybe he's that guy in the background, like holding up the flashlight in silhouette. And they're like, they're, they're driving past him because big Ben in that first panel of page eight is pointing to the right and he's like someone's saying i'll let you know in a second uh i'm just so i I found this confusing and Mm -hmm. some most of it i'm laying at the feet of uh jurwa who i don't think picked the right camera angles for the end of page eight i think we're too close and we need to see we need to see a panel where both the guy with the baseball cap and the night vision glasses and also scott sturgis we, we need to we need to see both of them together in one panel. One can be far away, one can be higher than the other, one can be behind a rock or something. But the the storytelling does not cement for me that they are in the same place. So I start to think they're not in the same yeah. place. I think this could be the fixed relatively easily that you that you have you know, I think that that guy with the binoculars is meant to be in the same scene. He's the he's the guy looking at Scott got Scott Sturges. Yeah. But then we've got the beginning of the, as as Tim indicates, the beginning of the the dialogue from the next scene. And I think if you just moved up the uh, Digester, capital city of Badistan, up into the top left hand corner, um, just to set, yeah, we're in some place new. Right. And then you began the dialogue. Is that him? We've never been introduced because they're talking 
they're talking about uh, Claymore that they're trying to spot Claymore and they've never met him before. So that's what right, that okay, right, dialogue right. relates to. But yeah, it, it's it's uh, unnecessarily confusing and uh, I think could be relatively fixed. I think the problem is, like Tim said, it's a it's a technique that that is used in films, and in film it would work because we would see. Um, we would see Scott Sturgis, you know, in an open desert. You might see the other guy. But yeah, that dialogue could cut into the scene like that. But I think it just doesn't work for a comic. Yeah, because you'd be able, in, in cinema, you'd be able to to hear the voice and you'd be able to tell it's the, the same voice beginning now that's in the different, the, the continuing into the next scene. Whereas yeah. we, we can't hear the, the voice, so we don't know it, yeah, if it's, it's really the same or not. Yeah, it's more of an audio um, yeah trick than a visual one it doesn't work visually in defense of this technique for comics i do want to say i see it a lot uh peter david uses it regularly i want to say john byrne does too but he hasn't been making like sort of regular comics for a while but um what peter david often does when he uses it is it'll be uh there'll be a parallelism there'll be a joke where whatever is happening on panel in the at the end of one scene the the like captioned audio dialogue that's starting the next scene sort of early is commenting on or reflecting on, or could also be what the person we see is still saying, even though the audio of the scene is like cutting ahead. So I don't think it's forbidden. I think what the rule that's broken here is that um, the, the audio starts two panels before the scene ends, not one panel. And then I, I, Mark makes a great point about just moving that caption up to the top of the panel. Uh, while I'm while I'm picking on this page, when we cut to Badikstan, Badikstan, one, two, three, four, panel four. Uh, yeah, that's Claymore. Better grab him quick before we get our butts dxed by these coil buzz bores, though. Um, those those are very strange looking. Buzz bores. Am I am I crazy? I don't quite know what I'm. That's that's the. That's the Cobra vehicle, right? Is that some new toy that I'm not remembering? No, no, you're not crazy. They're just drawn bad. Okay. <laughs> okay. So that's all. Okay. That's all. So I, I, you know what? Like I, I've, I've been hard on Tim Seeley for this issue and other issues. And actually this panel right here is like small potatoes for me. And I sort of don't mind compared to other stuff that I find more like primary. I think the problem here is, you know what? I'm going to lay this at Jerwa's feet. If you're, I think this page has too much happening in it because it's got to introduce a vehicle, uh, three three Joes who we see plus several more where maybe it's not important that we do, and they have to like get in and get out or show up and leave, and then also two Cobra vehicles which are really weird <laughs> and. And like hard to draw. And also the buzzbore is sort of hard to draw if it's not moving. Because if it's not moving, you don't see its blades, right? Like that's just like a blur or a whir. Um, so I don't think Seeley left himself enough space to draw this very strange Cobra vehicle. And I don't think uh, Jirawa gave Seeley enough sort of room to be able to draw all the stuff that this page uh, required. It's like the biggest threat on the page is the smallest element on the page you know it's like we got to get out of here before the buzz bores come and they're like these wee little tiny things <laughs> so okay wait just just to be clear that that first panel on the top of page nine 
is the guy on the left holding a, a, a rifle and in silhouette and like holding a flashlight? Is that Claymore? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Okay. And then in panel one, two, three, we see in the foreground, a part of a leg and a fist. Is that Claymore? Huh. Or is that some like other soldier or like Cobra? Uh, yeah, that must be, That's that must Claymore. be Claymore. Yeah. So okay, they've kind so, of driven slightly past him and then he oh, sort of must have run up and jumped they, up onto the they, pack. They swerved around because there are some curvy uh, speed lines above above uh-huh. the, above yeah. Earth Street and above the vehicle. Oh, okay, I see. Wow, uh, that page is bad. Okay, no, the, it is him because he's that hand is holding the flare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the same flare from the first panel. Okay, but then what's the what's the bright light in that next panel that's under the bore sound effect? Is that the flare? Uh, I guess. I okay, so <laughs> listeners, listeners, if you're right now thinking like this is too nitpicky, um, I I politely disagree. I think this is the interconnective tissue that makes a comic uh, hum along. And it's like the difference between like driving a car that's been like recently tuned up or is brand new and driving a car that has a rattle or like a little like uh, bump, like, you know, as it goes, because there's some piece loose. It's like you're sort of distracted and the ride doesn't feel smooth. I think that that fourth panel is actually the buzz is being shot at by that mounted machine gun so that the dots on the buzz balls are the bullets impacting it and then the very last panel of the of it's driving away and those two circles are the buzz balls flopping over in flames oh right okay and then um and then uh colorist brett r smith he turned the black lines of the rain white which is okay but he also turned the black lines of the right mounted gun white and he also turned the black lines of the buzz bores falling over white. Yep. So there are three different kinds of diagonal parallel lines inked in the background of this panel, and they all mean something different, but they're all treated the same way, which uh, which isn't clear. Ah, well. <laughs> um, so. I, I also, uh, if you turn the page, uh, I'm going to jump ahead. I spy the Cobra Coil logo, I guess. Yes. That's so cool. Uh what a what a smart bit of design, right? Like it's just the right half of the cobra insignia. Uh although maybe it's maybe you're sort of seeing it from a profile because you've got uh, Yes, the, it's the snake yeah, head. it's almost almost the right-hand side of the cobra logo or like a 3D cobra logo turned in on its side, right? Yes. It looks like the logo the on the side of the hydrofoil on the yeah, bottom. Yeah. yeah, okay. But uh, um, it, it would it be too on the nose if it was facing the other way so that it could look like the letter C? <laughs> okay. Also, um, all right. So I got really excited when I got to this page. First of all, like, hey, everyone, Claymore is here. That's totally awesome. Like, I never bought Mission Brazil, uh, Special Missions Brazil. What's it called? Um, yeah, I think it's yeah, called think Special Missions Brazil. Thank you. The, um, um, but the the kid next door had it, and I somehow traded or traded for or stole. I don't remember. But <laughs> my brother and I should not have had Claymore because we didn't buy the box. But I had Claymore, and it was really cool because I sort of understood that parts of him were reused. But he was also a new color scheme and a new guy, and that's a cool name because I was also reading Marvel's The Nom at the time. Anyway, 
So, hey, awesome, Claymore's here. Like, Jurwa's bringing in obscure characters. That's really fun, because um, that's what G.I. Joe is, particularly if you've just retired some characters in the previous issue. Um, so on this page, this is now page 10, uh, Claymore and Stalker have some back and forth, and then there's this little inset panel, which I like, of Big Ben. My apologies, mates. I'm not even a Yankee, but that sight makes my stomach turn. Uh, I, I don't understand that line. It's kind of dumb. Sorry. Um, <laughs> and also, why is Big Ben Australian? Uh, <laughs> uh, I think I'm just I think I'm just lobbing you a softball, Mark. Um, so that should be your line, Mark. You read that line, Mark. Sorry, Mark. You did. <laughs> We're apologies, Mike. I'm not even a Yankee, but even that that sort makes my stomach turn. Mary Poppins. Uh, thank you. I I'm sorry to everyone. Uh, okay, so then in the all right, so there's this building that looks like an embassy, and and it's got this flag over it, and I think cool. That's a cool visual. It's a cool little turn for the story. Um, and then, um, uh, well, they know we're coming. Might as well open up a six pack of herd on them. And they're driving forward, right? Like, cool. And there's also two other Joe vehicles, which I didn't actually quite see in the first panel on this page. Um, an Allstriker and something that looks like the Allstriker and the Arctic Blast had a baby, which is awesome. Turn up! Fact checking Joe here. The Joe vehicles in this scene are 2003 era vehicles. The hammer like Jeep is the Split Fire, and the Oar Striker like vehicle is the Desert Coyote. Back to the show, but Tim, you're gonna have to clean the barracks with a potato after. Fact checking Joe, out! Uh, and there's this big sound effect, right, which is, which is fun. And then there's this person in a, 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 a cloak and a, a masked uniform saying, Cobra Elite, secure the embassy. They're wiping out a defensive line. So I sort of missed that there were a bunch of bad guy soldiers uh, guarding this. You can see them in the previous panel, but it's it's an afterthought. And then the next panel, Stalker and Big Ben have already burst into the doorway and are coming at us down a hallway. And... Comics absolutely can and should do these little skips in time where, you know, like the next panel or the next page, it's like 30 feet to the west and like a full minute later. You don't have to show like all the Joes getting off of the hammer or whatever this is um, and like walking through the door and going upstairs. But I did find this sort of too big a jump because it's like, wait, weren't there a bunch of coil soldiers like, I was sort of expecting the next panel to be them shooting some coil soldiers or punching some coil soldiers or, like, running through a doorway and also knocking a Cobra coil soldier out while they're running through the doorway. So the coil guy says, secure the embassy. But then on the next page, there are no coil guys inside the embassy. So it seems like they've abandoned it or the Joes made it to, like, I don't know, the third floor, which is empty. So I, the... Then the the dialogue comes in over like a radio, right? Like uh, someone from headquarters is telling a stalker, your team is ordered to stand down and proceed to your pickup zone. The coil has taken control and are threatening unless you get out, right? So, and then the Joes in the final panel are sad. And it's like, sorry, it is not an honest, authentic acting sad. It's a like Tim Seeley abbreviation of like people stiffly like looking down, finger quotes, sad 
I like the I, I like the idea of this scene. It's like this like surprise, this turnaround, right? This thing that we see in the Marvel run where the Joes often get the shaft and they like, you know, they have a victory and then it's snatched from their hands because the, the bad guys um, out with them or some like government person uh, betrays them. But something about how this scene is paced and it transitions from page nine to 10 or hmm. um, something about it sort of confused me and didn't work for me. Yeah, in in my in my kind of original sort of top down view, my sort of my main kind of negative for the issue was probably that that you know there's a lot fit, fit it, being fitted in here, but that there's not maybe enough of a GI Joe versus Cobra action beat, and possibly that you know m- middle missing page could have been that beat where um, there's just a little bit more action as the the Joes are able to make their way into the um, uh, embassy and, and yeah to try and find and try and find that space some, somewhere else i guess yeah that's spot on if there had been a page an added page between these two where the joes are actually taking out some coil yes it doesn't even need that it could have been fixed with a caption we could have just put a caption above stalker that said shortly you know or soon you know the joes yeah but sometimes you need, need to see it don't you we you need to see a, a, someone we getting do. punched the whole the whole sequence is <laughs> <laughs> The whole sequence is just uh, I don't know, crammed in there. So then we turn the page, and uh, you guys know the toys better than me. So we see uh, wide scope and shockwave, and I'm having flashbacks to when Double Blast met <laughs> Roadblock in an earlier issue, and the Devil's Due comic is commenting on or contending with the phenomenon in the in the middle 2000 aughts where hasbro temporarily lost the rights to a code name a trademark and wanted to make a figure uh and so made that figure again but gave it a different name so like baroness and um shoot help me out chameleon thank you so um I could be misremembering here or judging uh, incorrectly based on this panel, but it sort of looks to me like at whatever point in the toy development process, Widescope was supposed to be Shockwave again and they didn't use the name and then they also gave him a dog? Or is this actually just a different guy who looks really similar and then it's awkward because if you put them next to each other, it looks like that first thing. Mm, yeah, who knows for sure, but um, you'd think that that wide scope was basically intended to be shockwave. But you know, is that a real figure? It Mark? could, yeah, wide wide scope and his dog Lamont. Oh, okay. So is it was it a shockwave mold? No, no, it was um, it was the new uh, GI Joe versus Cobra or Valum versus Venom um, uh, uh, figure. That, so, that just you know, recently come out in this. Like if if you put all the GI Joe Arctic guys next to each other, they you know they all do look similar and they all have a lot of overlap in their um, in their specialties. But you know if you put Flash and Sci Fi next to each other, you know they look really different. Any yeah. version of those two characters, and so this this sort of visual rhyming here, rather than being like fun or sort of an Easter egg, sticks out to me. Um, I do think the Joes can have two SWAT guys, sure, but I, I think if the toys are going to look 
that similar to each other, the comic might wish to avoid having them right next to each other. Yeah, they got half a dozen tripwires. <laughs> Green shirts. Um, so yeah, I can I can see I can see why Brandon Joe would would have done it. You know, Shockwave is a very popular character. Wide Scope is a is a figure with released as a new character with his a new file name and a and a dog. And, and so if you've got two SWAT guys, you know why not sort of team you know team them up and have those specialities working together in in tandem um yeah i guess it you know it's not gonna it's not gonna please everybody but i, I can kind of see the follow the thought process uh you know, behind you, it it doesn't bother me i think it's quite fun you know how i'm gonna make this work for myself uh <laughs> when when um when night force came out and my brother and i got the toys r us uh i already had a repeater and my brother got the two-pack that had night force repeater and we decided that he was his brother and he was also in the Joes, and we gave him a different name. Yeah, there so you go. I think if my brother and I had been at that age <laughs> when this issue was was coming out, when when the wide scope figure came out, we would have sort of recognized that it's like, well, wide scope looks too much like Shockwave. Oh, that's that's because they're brothers. They're from the same. We sort of would have rewritten uh, wide wide scope's uh, file card. It's like, no, no, he's he's related. You know, they they always brought the new Joes in, and they were like, oh, people would feel like. Uh, I don't want that character to replace this character. And I always thought like, they're not replacing him. They're just a new, just a new Joe on the team. Cause the way I looked mm-hmm. at it was like, like think about like the battle of Cobra Island, the original one, you'd have five or six different groups of Joes, you know? So, okay. One group has roadblock. One group has rock and roll. Uh, one group has, you know, this kind of character, this kind you know, it's like, yeah, we can <laughs> yeah. definitely have these same characters. Yeah. We I need really to go on a mission that involves kicking open the front door. Oh, sorry, shockwaves on uh, another mission. We <laughs> yeah. have to wait. Jay, I, I like your logic, and this is always how I felt. I think there was a precedent that was set around issue, help me out, guys, 31 in the Marvel run when there are some new Joes and some of the first and second year Joes get desk jobs. Yeah. Uh-huh. Is there yeah, yeah. is there is there a party and it's like yeah it's a party at the bottom of the the pit yeah um, and like cover girl and uh, flash or someone are like well I guess I got a desk job yeah yeah um, yeah it's all so, you yeah all your original thirteen are given desk jobs except yes. for snake eyes and I sort of remember some of the letters in the letters page were people writing in saying. Hey, 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 don't you don't have to do that. We're like, why are you doing that? So Jay, Jay, you make a great point, but um, you know, a, a writer decision like back in 1984 made a certain sense of this ever-expanding team that maybe like wouldn't really get that big. Um uh, I want to point out something that I like about um about uh Jirwa and Seely's decisions with Scott Sturgis. So um, he's this computer guy and uh, he's got a camera and he mentions his like thumb drive or whatever, you mm-hmm. know, like filling up his disc with photos. And he's wearing a shirt, that, a T-shirt that says I'm online, right, which is funny and maybe a little cynical. But also uh, the next scene after Widescope and Shockwave, uh, Scott Sturgis is reading a book, a paper book by Candlelight. So there is this little contrast. There's a little added layer to his character where he also leads something of an analog life. 
Huh. Uh, I, I don't think he should fall asleep with a candle with yeah. an open flame near his bed, but that does create a dramatic visual where the Viper can put out that flame uh, by hand. He better get used to reading alone. He's going to be up there in Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, yeah, it is, it is an oddity. And I guess they must, they must've worked backwards from that idea of, of a finger sort of putting out uh, the cand- the candle was a cool visual and working back from, well, I guess if he does that, he's got to have a candle on him. Why is that? But yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah. With, with him being clearly quite, you know, into his tech, I don't know if it makes such enormous logic that he would shun electrical lighting. Um, but, but what, one of my notes to my, and he's a Steelers <laughs> fan. So one of my notes to myself was that it, you know, there is a kind of a date stamp on, on this book in terms of the technology that Scott Sturgis is using that he's got his digital camera, which is, I guess, you know, still relatively new technology, which is full up with the massive number of 115 shots. <laughs> and, and then he's also beavering away uh, on his computer, which is a, a vintage iMac G3, which would have been, I guess, cutting tech at the time. That was one of my eye spies, the, his iMac. So the, the bit a couple pages later where, where we find out who the two Vipers are, um, that's, that's a lot of fun. And I, uh, I thought the ending, both putting Scott Sturgis in Iceland is like fun and also makes sense. But uh, I thought the final two bits of dialogue in that scene, okay, cool. So where do I get the jetpack and my laser rifle? Right. And I'd, I feel like you you very sparingly should have two characters say the same thing at the same time, and because it, it sort of reads as as a device and not natural. But also when it's as long as "Don't push your luck, Scott," I feel like I feel like that's that's more than those two people would have <laughs> happened to say at the same time. Almost, it's almost like the cartoon ending, though, isn't it? When you'd uh, when you'd have that kind of slightly yeah. corny dialogue. Followed by forced laughter and the yeah, the camera pulls back and they're all all laughing. We need a laugh track for this. (laughs) Um, Like every single episode of Thundercats, and then you know the final page I thought was an interesting subplot um, setup. And um, and what did we think about this? This way it's closing with him uh, with Scott Sturges ending up in Iceland. So they've. My my take is that they've kind of invented a an Iceland GI Joe bureau uh, and created an office and stuck him there all on his own, basically to you know to get him out of the way because he was being a nuisance. I think um, I don't know. Is is that your take? Yeah, I I mean kind of, and that's why the story really doesn't work for me because it's like, oh, wait a minute. It, you, okay, so you're bringing this guy in as a Joe now, but you're sticking him way out in the middle of nowhere uh, to do what? It, it's like they didn't say, you know, this is your position. This is what you're going to be doing. Duke just takes him there and says, uh, uh, you're going to be here. Did I miss something? Is there a line of dialogue where he says you're going to be doing something or this is why we want you here? Yeah, it says that, that he'll be watching satellite footage all day is the most tangible thing they say. Yeah, okay. I, I could go either way with where I think the story is suggesting uh, Scott, uh, Simon Sturgis, Stuart Sturgis, uh, Salvador Scott Sturgis um, is going to be. I think maybe he's going to show up again. Maybe he was really just written to be in this one issue as a character to bring 
the readers back to the story and to introduce stuff to lapsed readers. Um, I think what Jay is getting at is that if he doesn't have, if there isn't more of a promise that he'll be in future stories, why spend any pages on him for this issue? It's not a strong enough device to like recap what has happened and to tell readers sort of who's who and where's where. Um, But G.I. Joe is such an ensemble book with so many characters who show up once and then come back several years later when every writer who has dealt with G.I. Joe for a long period of time, because there are so many characters. So I'm okay with sort of not knowing. It's like, well, maybe Jirawa definitely wants to bring him back. Maybe Jirawa doesn't want to bring him back. Maybe Jirawa is creating him. And if he comes up with a good idea later on, might bring him back. Like I can certainly imagine if this book makes it to issue 50 and there being a big, a double-sized fight in issue 50 where all the Joes go to some Cobra base or something like a satellite or back to Cobra Island. It's like, there's going to be a page where they're calling uh, Scott Sturgis, you know, and they're like, we need you to reroute the laser from the satellite. He's like, okay, I'm at my computer in Iceland. <laughs> so um, logically, I think Jay's right. If he, if, if there isn't more of a promise for him to do something and join the, really join the team, he should have had more of an integral connection to the story. It's like, he should have been like also uncovering something about Cobra that then benefits the Joes or like also in this issue, it turns out that he's a double agent and Cobra has been blackmailing him or something. Like maybe it is missing one more connection or motivation, but uh, on its surface, I'm okay with, with not knowing. I don't know. It's kind of like in the, in old bond movies when the villain would tell the bad guy their plan and, you know, before they kill him or, or whatever, give him enough time to escape. It's, it's like, that's the way Duke's treating this guy. He's like, I'm going to tell you our, everything about our organization, including deeply personal secrets that are none of your business. And then I'm going to, no, nah, I'm not going to kill you. I'm just going to ship you to the top of the world. I mean, it's like, I don't know. We need, to, it's, it's, like I said, it's not a good jumping on point for me. We have to come back to this guy. I feel like at some point he's got to play a bigger part. Otherwise, this has just been a, a wasted issue. We shall see. Harsh. Um, so <laughs> I, I do, I do want to say, actually, we didn't, we didn't even, we didn't say it at the top of the, at the top of the recording. You know, we usually do these like three or four or five issue arcs in a single episode. And yes, this is a one issue story. So we can just do a single issue for this episode because we're doing the whole story. But I do think it's, it's helpful since there's a, a new writer and a new focus for the book for this episode to just focus solely on one issue. Yes, indeed. And particularly with the kind of the density of what's going going on we shall see yeah how it all pans uh pans out with the with the next issue so 27 uh the next issue is uh another one issue and quite a lot happens so so i think we'll just probably cover that uh on its own uh after that we get into a five-parter called players and pawns so i think we'll probably try and cover that in two parts given that uh, five parts is quite a lot to uh, chew through in, in one go so that will be a yeah, preview of what what is to come shall we get into i spies i, I spy, spy with, with my, my little eye. eye i've got two go on tim let's start with one of yours on page six i spy hector ramirez again yeah. uh, who is not named uh, a different reporter is named someone someone named tom is named in the scene and then this one's kind of embedded, you guys. 
on the opposite page, page seven, I spy a full one-page ad for Rhino Home Video's DVD box set of G.I. Joe Season 1, Part 1, which I worked on. Nice. Uh, my name, my name's on the back of the box as a special thanks. I was animation consultant for Rhino for uh, a year or two, and I worked on uh, about 12 Transformers, G.I. Joe, and Beast Wars box sets. Very cool. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, I should note that uh, the these G.I. Joe and Transformers sets uh, that Rhino did, the sound audio company that they subcontracted to added sound effects so they could get a Dolby 5.1 label, which greatly disappointed me and some other fans who noticed. And big ha shout out to Shout Factory uh, several years later for... Um, fixing that mistake and some other uh, errors when they did their G.I. Joe and Transformers DVD sets. Very good. Yeah, very cool. Excellent. Yeah, I think you need both of those in, in your collection, one for the one for the soundtrack and one for the extras, right, Tim? <laughs> I, I have both in my collection because, the yeah, the bonus features on the, on the Rhino ones uh, were good. See, that's how they get you. <laughs> it's how they get you. Okay, what did I have? So I had oh, I spy a on page one the trope uh, of watching a funeral at a distance in the rain. So so it's Destro doing the uh, doing the the watching the uh, the oh, funeral yeah. from afar under the umbrella in the rain. Oh, yeah, you know what? We didn't talk about this scene as a as a writer decision, and I wanted to. Can I interrupt your giant list of I spies just for a Go moment? On, yeah, so linger like, on this a, one. Why not? In a sentence, Mark and Jay. Uh, what do you think of Destro and the Baroness showing up at this funeral? I like it, uh, except I don't like the way Destro's drawn. But I do like them showing up. I, I mean, Destro's been kind of an interesting character throughout the Devil's Do run. And I've c- complained about him before. I think that they've just made him really, really bloodthirsty in some respects. But they've also really ratcheted up his idea of I think honor and, you know, respect. And there's been multiple scenes where he's talked about, you know, having mutual respect for the Joes and stuff. So this is totally fitting with, uh, with Destro's character and also with the Baroness being like, why are we here? She's like, we don't need to be here. He's <laughs> like, we have to pay respect, you know? And she's like, ah, yeah, I'm going to be shooting all these people one day. <laughs> <laughs> she wants more funerals for the Joes is what she wants. <laughs> yeah tourist yeah um, um yeah so uh yeah i think i think i agree with jay it's sort of like consistent with what we know of their their characters that they're sort of showing up to to show you know show respect there's you know some some parallels to, to scenes in that the hammer era um so so i'm i'm fine uh, with all of that there was us us doing a quick google of this and one of the the, the uh complaints on uh, the message boards of the time was that someone complained uh the biggest gripe about this whole issue was that destro unmasked was a white guy and i was like oh come on <laughs> really you know is this the first gi joe book that you've read is anyway. he white right there that looks like i don't know like i've seen candy that's that color i, I don't know what uh, yeah it's a kind of i don't i don't i don't know what i'd describe that color as yeah again it's just the coloring in this book is I feel like it's atrocious. Metallic mahogany. Yeah, it's like if he's going to be skin, he doesn't have a mask on. Just making the same, you know, more or less the same color as Baroness. 
I don't know why they they colored his face like that. Mark, what are some more of your I spies? Okay, I had um, an I spy to the title. Scott Sturgis is a reasonable man, and I feel like that must be like harkening back to some sort of quote uh, of of some description. I'm not, I can't put my finger quite on what it, it is, but. Uh, in law, a reasonable man is a phrase that is used to denote a hypothetical person in society who exercises average care, skill and judgment in conduct, who serves as a comparative standard in determining liability. So that, you know, the, the lawyers would be arguing, what would a reasonable man be expected to do in this uh, situation? Um, and I've got a, a very favourite quote about uh, a re- the reasonable man. Um, which doesn't necessarily make a huge amount of sense in this context, but I'll say it anyway, just because I love it. Um, It's uh, from uh, George Bernard Shaw, uh, Man and Superman. The reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. Change happens because someone is not willing to play ball, essentially. Hmm. Play uh, ball. You mean baseball at the pit? Very interesting. It could be. It could be. <laughs> so we had some lesser known Joes. We had Hardball out there. So a first appearance of Hardball actually playing baseball in the comic, I believe. Nice to see Hardball. Uh, as- I loved that figure when I was a kid. He was very well made. Very well made figure. Like a yeah. Good gun. Um. We had Dodger, who's as quite a fan favorite, and and we haven't seen a lot of in the comics since uh, since his all of his teammates got wiped out in uh, in uh, Trucial Abysma, uh, wherever it is, was in that big oil uh, refinery explosion. And Big Ben, who again is a fan favorite, we've not seen an awful lot of, and we've talked about Claymore, Wide Scope, uh, and oh the uh, the Wide. But Widescope and Lamont's uh, Easter egg that I noticed was that uh, he's Widescope is speaking German to his dog, and I wondered at first whether that might be uh, because the character was was German on his file card, but he's not. But it is because uh, police dogs mm-hmm. are usually German shepherd dogs, and they often come from Europe and are initially trained with German dog commands. So it's easier for the officer to learn a few German words than it is to retrain the dog with all new commands. Some people think that that, that also it's less likely that you'd unintentionally um, have people saying commands yeah. for the dog to, you know, to hear and obey. Um, but uh, yeah, generally, I think they would uh, obey their 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 handler more than just a random stranger shouting kill at the dog anyway so okay mark what's your next what's your next i spy so we've got a new gi joe location in the grand tradition of of all of larry hammer's made up places we've got um and i keep on fluffing the pronunciation on this bad hick stan one of you can try and pronounce it better than me. Jay, Jay had a more valiant attempt, I think, um, earlier on. Badikstan, I think. <laughs> Badikstan. That, that sounds good. Badikstan. Um, and then we had all of the names on the wall. I think uh, I think I've got a jingle for uh, name name the Joes on the wall already. So here we go. Explain the wall. Chief's got to explain the wall. Do you think you? Know it all, it's not in Berlin or 
Hadrian's The Great Wall of China No, it's a wall that's memorial Not wailing, no Can Chief explain more? Explain it And let's see if we can name the Joes So I think I'm, I'm, I can only do two of these. I, I fully admit Joe's real, <laughs> real names, not my specialty. Okay, let's, uh, let's go with the ones that you could recognize. Um, uh, Lawrence, Lawrence Flagg is definitely a shipwreck. No. Um, <laughs> and, um, Lawrence Flagg was one of them, honestly. Uh, <laughs> actually, that's the only one. Phil, Provost, is Chuckles, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Chuckles. And, uh, Carl Greer wasn't that grunt? Uh, no, that was Doc. Oh, okay. So we've got Ian Costello, Avalanche, Brian Davis, Blaster, Blaine Gonsalves, Knockdown, uh, Sherman Guderian, uh, Heavy Metal, David McCarthy, Blocker, Blaine Parker, Mainframe, who had forgotten had died in uh, that, that recent arc. Oh, yeah. Uh, Thomas Rossi, DJ, David Thomas, Crazy Legs. And then we had a couple of names that um, couldn't be matched. Uh, Mark Frewith, Walter Rose, and Samuel Wells, possibly G.I. Joe fans or letter writers or friends of uh, the writer, perhaps. And uh, yeah, also conjecture. They could also be green shirts that were just not named or made up names for Mangler and Coolbreeze who never got names, uh, file names as well. And uh, my final I spy was Scott Sturgis. So I thought this must be a real life name. Let's have a look. Uh, the first hit was a news editor at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And I thought, ha ha, we've got a real life journalist. That must be him. Uh, and then second hit was Seattle musician, founder of such projects of Converter, Pain Station and Alonus, the author of the post-industrialist album Shockfront. Given that he's a Seattle musician, the same hometown as Brandon Jawa, I think that is our match, uh, gentlemen. Also, yeah, photo reference. Um, it's uh, he's it looks to be a bull guy with stubble and uh, boxy glasses. So I think uh, he think he's our man. I've got a little I spy uh, in the middle of a book. There's a one page ad for Sound Blaster Audio Audigy Two Z Five Gamer Limited Edition and Gigaworks S Seventy Five Hundred. And it's this ad always sort of puzzled me at the time because. Um, one quarter of the ad is a slightly blurry action shot of a, a Jedi holding a double-bladed lightsaber, but with the blast helmet and the like training um, orb that Luke Skywalker practices on in the first mm -hmm. Star Wars. Yep. And I've always found this, I've always found this ad odd because one, you don't see the Jedi's face, and two, um, there's like no Star Wars logo anywhere on this ad. So I've always at first glance think that this like computer company or this audio company is um, like illegally swiping a Star Wars visual or like doing something that looks like Star Wars, but isn't quite Star Wars, but it has the Lucasfilm THX logo on the bottom and Lucasfilm is in the Indisha on the very bottom. But I think what I'm really saying is 
Um, nowadays, if you had any kind of ad for any kind of product that involved Star Wars, whether it's candy or toy or video game, computer stuff, uh, you would definitely have a Star Wars logo and the Star Wars elements. I guess there's a very small Star Wars Jedi Knight Jedi Academy logo here. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, this this always has struck me as a sort of indirect and very odd uh, ad. The last page of this comic is for... Um, the Wizard Fan Awards, um, and uh, to determine what ranks as the best in the comics world from 2003. And this stuff always sort of bothers me and also delights me because it's such a time capsule, right? It's like, you know, best writer, like Bendis, Jeff Loeb, you know, like Mark Wade. This this is where you, you vote. These are not the winners. And I was scanning this quickly to see if anything G.I. Joe came up. And G.I. Joe is in the running in two categories. Um, Favorite supporting character. Uh, there's uh, characters from uh, Batman, Amazing Spider-Man, Ultimate Spider-Man, The Ultimates, and someone you may have heard of uh, in G.I. Joe named Snake Eyes. And then uh, favorite miniseries. Uh, you can vote for uh, 1602, which is the Neil Gaiman, uh, like colonial Marvel story. JLA Avengers, the company crossover. Superman Red Sun, Ultimate Six, which is a Spider-Man story. And transformers gi joe eagle eye fans will note that transformers gi joe is the dreamwave story because uh didn't wasn't the devils do one gi joe transformers yeah um and then um uh the two pages before this are full page ads for uh 88 mph studios which it's not clear what these ads are for, but one has a drawing of, of a new character from the world of Tron and the other one has a drawing of Slimer, but these are both like comic book drawings. These are not like movie poster photos or airbrushed. These aren't like photos for action figures or uh, video games. This is definitely some kind of comic or like book that looks like comics. And there, there was a Tron comics graphic novel sequel that came out in like 2008 that is not at all or 2006 or something that's not at all related to tron legacy uh or uh the cartoon that was on uh, disney xd um and uh i i don't know that that this ghostbusters thing whatever it was ever happened and i'm trying to i'm sort of asking this as a question because maybe you two guys know is 88 miles per hour studio, are these two projects at all related to that Transformers art book, Genesis, which, uh, which came out? I wouldn't have any idea. That uh, image, image, idea. there was a, there was a, there was a hardcover Transformers art book called Genesis, the Art of Transformers, volume one. It was published by Image. This is in the era when for a couple years, every image book had a yellow rectangle on the top of the spine and it said in black letters, Image. And uh, oh, yeah. it was it was supposed to be like all development art from the Transformers toy line. And it, it wasn't a Kickstarter, but it was some early thing where I think you could prepay. And uh, and by the time it came out, it was like mostly just pinups, like new Transformers art from fans. And uh, it was pretty good. Um, and I, I sort of remember 88 miles per hour studio uh, was involved in that, but you know, Tron Ghostbusters uh, in in like 2003, 2004, someone trying to license that stuff is jumping on the same curve as Dreamwave with Transformers and Devils Do with G.I. Joe and, and Voltron and um, 
Micronauts, um, but uh, maybe too early or sort of those two brands, Tron and Ghostbusters, uh, not popular enough to to like make a splash. Um, I was just Googling to to have a look about uh, 88 miles per hour studio. So 88 miles per hour is obviously um, a reference back to back to back to the future. So uh, another 80s property. Oh, yeah. And they announced a Tron comic book series in June 2003, which was going to be a continuation of the 1982 film. Uh, and they were, and they also announced a Ghostbusters project as hmm. well. So uh, actually, it looks like that one actually happened. Ghostbusters Legion was a 2004 comic book series published by Quebec-based publisher uh, 88 uh, Miles Per Hour Studios. So, uh, Andrew Dabb and Steve Kerth. Drew it. Oh, cool. Yes, uh, I, I have confirmation from the internet that uh, 88 Miles Per Hour Studios did publish through Image Genesis, The Art of Transformers, this coffee table book. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, my final I Spy is the inside back cover of this comic book, which advertises uh, G.I. Joe Reborn, which is the comic that sort of replaces Frontline. Ah. This is when Devils Do, two years into its its G.I. Joe era, tries an ultimate G.I. Joe. That the, the way that you know Marvel had regular Spider-Man and Ultimate Spider-Man, like a newer continuity that it started over, and G.I. Joe Reborn is the name of the it's basically like a zero issue, right? Yeah. And it, I think it so. kicks off yeah. what became G.I. Joe Reloaded. Uh, but confusingly, it had it had two zero issues or two number one issues. Yeah, um, there was a G.I. Joe Reborn and a Cobra Reborn, I think. Right, thank you. Uh, so this, this image on the inside back cover is a uh, uh, Tim Bradstreet drawing, and his are all very carefully photo-referenced yeah. of Snake Eyes uh, holding his Uzi and his sword in a like underground, like brick um, tunnel and uh, with a distressed military stencil treatment for the word. It's G.I. Joe Reborn uh, and John Nayreiber, who had uh, written the the World War II era D- Dreamwave yeah. Transformers G.I. Joe crossover uh, and with art by uh, Joe Bennett, who was bouncing back and forth between Marvel and... Um, uh, I want to say Extreme Studios. I think Joe Bennett did a bunch of the, um, like, Alan Moore Supreme, I think. Right. I think so. So if you saw this ad at this time, I think it's both very exciting because it's Devil's Do, like, trying again, trying something big with some different talent, some uh, more, like, name marquee talent um, from the world of comics than a, a Jurawa or a, a Sealy. Um, and like pushing a G.I. Joe book. Very exciting, but maybe worrisome. Yeah, but also the the Tim Bradstreet sort of yes. illustration being super cool and, yeah, and oh, suggesting yeah. something, you know, That's uh, awesome undertones from, from, you know, being carried across from his Punisher work and that kind of thing of it being, you know, this is going to be something different and grittier, more movie-like, more serious, different yes. kind. This isn't your mama's G.I. Joe or whatever. <laughs> yes, thank you for adding that. Uh, but also for a reader at the time, maybe in the back of your mind, a little worrisome because it's like, mm. wait, is something wrong with regular G.I. Joe that two years in you have to start another G.I. Joe? 
and and it's it's worth it's, I'm glad you brought this up because it was something that sort of Joe was sort of mentioned in the background as well that that Devil's Jews sort of focus sort of slightly moves away from the you know main book of GI Joe in the ARAR continuity and, and onto this uh, this GI Joe Reborn continuity of they they hope that this is going to be their big success. And, and it's going to be the their big G.I. Joe book and, and potentially big enough that they can use that as their flagship and quietly drop the main book. So, yeah, a good, good, uh, good reminder that, that, that this is that kind of era in the background of it. it this is just being relaunched and we're having these two sim, you know, simultaneous continuities uh, happening. Yeah, maybe maybe we'll do a, a one off special look at uh, the G.I. Joe Reborn era or something like that. Um, dip our toes in and, and have a discussion about it cool i have an ice buy um you guys probably can't see it very well but can you read any of the titles on the bookshelf on page six i can because i'm looking at it on my computer monitor i've got uh i can read disneyland of the i think it says 60s which i'm not sure what that book is orion mystery which is by robert buval which is a kind of a ancient aliens type thing um there was one since conspiracy then there's a book by david ike who's completely you know conspiracy uh tinfoil hat uh, of course he's got a jfk book on the shelf and i think on top of the tv that book says illuminati so our, our journalist here is a big conspiracy guy is one of them called black helicopters yes yep okay all pointing towards him being a big conspiracy yeah. uh, guy, yeah. I think it's funny if you if you look down. For me, I'm scrolling down. On the um, on his cork board, the one thing says crazy dentist on the loose. And of course, <laughs> Dr. Mindbender, you know, experimented yeah. on himself. And he was a dentist before he became a mad scientist. So that uh, is obviously referencing Dr. Mindbender. Very good. Normally we would get to error detected. Do we have errors to uh, to flag here? I don't really see any any glaring errors. No, I mean, uh, no, no. Very good. That's a tick in the box for the for the yeah. team. Quarter of the week. 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 Uh, favorite line of dialogue. Um, I I've got my favorite line of dialogue, which might might be Tim's least favorite line of dialogue. Um, let's see. It's Duke and Scott. Scott, my name is Duke. I'm the commander of the GI Joe team, answerable only to the man we call General Tomahawk, Hawk for short. Do you know what my favorite thing about this job is? Um, women want you, and men want to be you. No, those are perks. My favorite part of the job is making problems go away. That was a good uh, one. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't mind that. Nothing nothing jumped out at me as as a favorite line, but I, I don't say that as as a criticism. Yeah, probably if I had a favorite line, it would have been that one right there. But I, I really, you know, like like Tim said, nothing jumped out at me. Not as much as the least favorite line of dialogue, which is Duke talking <laughs> to uh, Sturgis about Snake Eyes and Scarlet. Who is the MVP? Most valuable person in these issues. Okay, we've not done this for a while. Let's uh, let's do an MVP. Who was your favourite inclusion in this issue? 
I think for me, just having Claymore, uh, it's just as a, a cool piece of uh, fan service of this unknown character and, and just a bit of a blank slate, being able to set up a cool new character and, and you know, uh, allow that to be part of the the team making their stamp on the book with a mm-hmm. with a new character. What about you guys? Who did who who was either your favorite character on the issue or just a nice inclusion that you're glad showed up? I'll go with Claymore. I'm like Tim. I don't I didn't have that set, but somehow I ended up with the Claymore figure. And I did think <laughs> that he was really cool. Did you also steal him from my next door neighbor? Probably not from your next door neighbor. <laughs> Someone's next door neighbor. But uh, I, I did think that was a cool figure, you know. So it was it's it's neat to see a figure like that in a book, um, you know. Like like we said during when we were talking to Brandon about that stuff, seeing seeing the new characters in there just makes the characters uh, real for you, you know. It's like they that's when they become part of uh, you know part of what I refer to as your headcanon. That, that's why for me, like so many characters that appeared in A-Raw after issue 100 are just kind of like, eh, whatever. I don't, I don't really have any, you know, those characters don't mean anything to me because I didn't read that. Um, but when they show up in a book like this, you're like, oh yeah, Crosshair's, a, he's a, he's a new Joe now. You know, and this guy's a new Joe or still holding out uh, judgment on spider Jerusalem here. I was also excited to see Claymore just, uh, just to toss in a different answer. Uh, I like the inclusion of Destro. Yeah, it's a good call. Very good. Uh, okay, so yo, Joeage time. Jay, why didn't you start off today? Okay, uh, like I said, and I've been kind of hard on it throughout. This has not been one of my favorite issues. I don't feel like it's a great starting on point for anybody if if that was the intention. Um, to me, it would be a good, like you know, a good a good first part of an of an arc, you know, or, or something that. Uh, you know, is going to lead to a bigger thing. So we, we just kind of have to wait and see, you know, like I said, I, I have issues with how the story goes down in, in a couple spots. Mostly it was just, you know, Duke revealing too much personal information to somebody that's, you know, nobody. Um, so that, that was a problem, but it's nice to see, you know, Brandon back. Tim Seeley's getting a little better. It's not a great issue. The coloring is, ugh really really bad for me five <laughs> okay yeah um, C- certainly no higher than that okay i'll i'll i think it's a difficult issue because it's it's meant to be you know much like that um uh the 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 hammer written prologue issue that that we saw in in recent years from um id idw these these kind of almost placeholder entry in kind of let's review the world through uh, a new character's eyes. It's a difficult issue to to carry off in terms of making it a true wow issue. You know, if if you're kind of slightly you know easing people in, it, it's it, that's going to be a difficult thing to accomplish. But um, I think I you know I like the art. I thought it, it, it did did the the job. I thought that there were an, an enormous amount of moving pieces being covered within just a single issue, which is uh, really difficult to to pull off well. And I think they really did that um, did do that well. I think with a couple of those those beats sort of changing that we talked about, um, maybe just a kind of a little bit more more action, it, it would have elevated it for for me. But um, for what it is, I did like it, and and kind of again as that intro issue. 
it does set up, up an expectation of like, okay, we've got that kind of intro out the way. What, what's going to happen next with the the main meat of the the story? So um, I am looking forward to the the next issue, but in of itself, um, solid, uh, but not classic uh, seven. Uh, you guys said everything I would say. It's not bad. Uh, it it's okay. It's it's enjoyable. It's got problems. Five. Okay. Good. Okay. Um. Cool. So uh, that is uh, issue twenty six done. I did have a new uh, a new segment to just trail, um, and you guys have had a little bit of a preview uh, of it. So it is GI Joe Origins, um, and in this segment, it's essentially uh, one of us will pitch a GI Joe Origins tr- style trailer. Um, as if, as if we're, you know, execs create, crafting our own little um, teaser trailer uh, about uh, the GI Joe origin of a much-loved character, but with very little research or authenticity to comics, <laughs> toys, and uh, file cards. Um, so, hopefully, you get the gist of what this is all about. And to, to illustrate it, here's the first one I came up with. It's GI Joe Origins. Cutter. You know, have to lead with one of the main characters, of course, so so that's what I did. Talking Joe presents G.I. Joe Origins. I'm on a new level. G.I. Joe Origins. Cutter. Growing up in San Diego next to SeaWorld. Young boy Skip A. Stone had a view of the orchid tank from his bedroom window. He had just two dreams of what he might be when he grew up. To play for the local team, the Boston Yankees, or to be a killer whale fish, just like his neighbor, Shamu. When the school career guidance counselor said that neither of these things could possibly happen, he decided to prove them wrong. After graduating and taking the summer off to coach the women's swimming team in an episode of his life he just calls his Long Wet Summer, he went on to specialize in biorobotics and create a fleet of killer orcus cyborgs. He called them Wet Hydraulic Aquatic Launchers Enhanced, aka Whales. This caught the attention of the G.I. Joe team and they immediately offered him the role of Whale Captain. Yo Joe! You didn't hear me chuckle just now because I chuckled yesterday when I watched it, listened to it. Uh, it's great. And uh, it it flexes a different muscle for you, which is it's like exaggeration, you know, like it's not just uh, rhyming lyrics for one of our guests, but it's like making fun of movie tropes and doing these silly exaggerations of Joe's. So good job, sir. Yeah, I liked it. I thought it was very funny. Thank you. So hopefully this can be some sort of uh, regular continuing uh, feature. I've got a couple more uh, sort of mentally queued up that I need to write something for and uh, record. But please, if you've got your own ideas about a G.I. Joe character that you would like to uh, have an origin film trailer for, uh, please do come up with your own and we'll we'll uh, record them on a future 
episode and this is open up to the listeners as as well so if you've got an itch to uh write a little gi joe uh, movie trailer less than a, a minute long uh you can you can write it and email it to us or uh, even record it and, and send that on look forward to uh seeing what we all come up with but I think that is us done talking talking Joe this time round. Next time uh, on Talking Joe Disavowed, we will continue our look at the Brandon Joe era of GI Joe with the next issue, issue twenty seven, which is uh, ostensibly a one parter, but in the uh, ongoing saga, this one is called Paradigm Shift, which for a long time I used to think was would have been pronounced Paradigm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> then uh, and then as we progress we'll we'll probably carve up the arcs a little bit uh, over on the regular show we recently spoke to artist cuba ball about uh, his spotlight issue on falcon which was issue 288 uh, we will have our uh, regular review show of that either coming out soon or just last time also coming up uh, will be issue 289 which is all about dawn and helix uh, it's interesting to see these spotlight issues and how what sort of ground they cover, um, whether it's uh, part of the ongoing saga or, you know, slightly to the side or, or what. It's a bit unpredictable as to, to how the story's going to turn out. Always interesting to see Helix, too, in the A-Raw universe. Yeah, yeah. Sort of came, came in uh, a little while ago as a bit of a, um, yeah, from, from left side, really, yeah. given that she was so firmly tied to the Chuck Dixon-verse uh, of... Uh, continuity of idw so tim where can people find you when you're not talking joe with me and jay hubcomics.com is my the website for my store and a real american book.com is my gi joe blog i hit i see a lot of people on facebook saying oh where can i find these gi joe back issues and i mentally think to myself well if you drove to Somerville and uh, tracked down Hub Comics, I'm sure you would find a treasure trove, such as the lucky person who was uh, able to pick up five hard, yeah, you know, hard to find GI Joe hardcovers from uh, IDW. It's amazing that you had all five of them. Usually, you see something like that, you'll see like one, like one volume out of five or something. I take my G.I. Joe inventory seriously. <laughs> Actually, uh, someone yesterday was in the shop, uh, a trio, and one of them went over to Sci-Fi and gasped and said, I've never seen so many Transformers collections at a store. Oh, wow. Because uh, we have uh, not the complete run, but almost the complete run of the main IDW continuity. So I also take my Transformers inventory seriously. <laughs> Excellent. That's got to be a lot of books because they've put out a lot of Transformers comics. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you think it's only so many, but there is more than meets the eye. <laughs> um, Jay, where can people find you when me and Tim aren't talking about you? <laughs> <laughs> Break room sketches on Facebook. Excellent. You can find us in the usual places. Talkingjoe.co.uk is the website with links to those places. I've just this week um, 
done some editing of that main page and moved some of the videos around to, to put some of my uh, newer favorite videos uh, as a spotlight. And I've added in a couple of uh, couple of Twitter quotes in there as well from our guests. So uh, looking refreshed. We've also got a Facebook page with uh, lively discussions happening there, uh, Twitter, Instagram, and you can always find us on email as well as on Patreon, patreon.com slash Talking Joe, uh, where people can back us and support us and uh, keep the lights on the uh, website and all of our recording uh, subscriptions. So big thank you to Richard, Sam, Jay, Bill, Christopher and Justin, who are all getting early access to episodes as well as a Ready Breck style glow for the good work they are doing, supporting us. Phew. So that's us done. Uh, but remember... Nobody but Talking Joe. A real American podcast with a guy from England. Lighter Mary Poppins. Bollocks. Wankers. He did say bollocks in the issue. We didn't talk yes, about that. Yes, he did. <laughs>